It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Michael Hughes, president and CEO of Elevation Labs. Michael has over 18 years of experience in the beauty and skincare industry, and he started his career with Procter & Gamble in Ireland, producing skincare and cosmetic brands such as Olay, Max Factor, and CoverGirl. Michael received his bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from the University College Dublin in Ireland and a master's in business administration from the University of Iowa. His goal is to build on Elevation's world-class operations, creating a culture that is highly adaptable, team-oriented, and streamlined to ensure excellent workflow and best-in-class responsiveness for every customer. Michael Hughes, welcome into the corner office. Thank you, Brent. Happy to be here. Ah, great to have you here. And it's just uh, after the holidays, and um, I'm actually in Connecticut with a little bit of cold outside. We had a little flurry of snow, and the, and, uh, the sun came out. What's it like in Idaho today? We've had more than a flurry of snow the last couple of days. So. <laughs> You're right in the midst of it up there, We're in I the think, midst right? Of it, yeah. Good, good oh, skiing my season. I can imagine. Well, I, I imagine it's a little bit uh, different than your early days in Ireland. So let's talk about that. Tell me about those early years, you know, where you grew up and what your early family life was like. Sure, yeah. So I grew up in uh, a town called Bray in County Wicklow mm. in Ireland, just south of Dublin. Okay. Um, so uh, East Coast, right? East, East Coast, Coast, yeah, right? and and lived, you know, ten minutes from the the ocean, and uh, ah, to nice. totally took that for granted while I lived there. Of course, from living in the middle of the U.S., you know, you realize uh, what you miss uh, when you go back right. home. So, right now, were you able was, to swim in that ocean? I, that must have been pretty cool weather uh, or pretty cool temperatures. <laughs> well, when you grow up there, you don't realize what cold is, and you, <laughs> jump, you jump in the sea when when you get the opportunity. Nice. Uh, I don't know nice. if I'd be jumping in today, but uh, <laughs> you know, you know when. When kids, uh, they don't think too much about that kind of thing. Brothers and sisters, parents, tell me a little bit about them. Sure, yeah. So uh, my parents uh, did a great job raising all five of us. Five. Uh, right. Yeah, my dad was an electrician. He had to leave uh, school early and take an apprenticeship. and Working class. Um, yeah, um, and worked, mm -hmm. uh, worked through that and actually went back to school uh, Later in his career, uh, ah. nighttime, which you know, I Good remember that pretty vividly as a child. How how hard he worked during the day, and then would hop on a train into Dublin City and and go to night courses and, and built up his education that way. And actually Fantastic. ended up 
he worked 42 years for the same company, for the wow. electrical supply company for, for Ireland. Awesome. Um, awesome. And ended up doing electrical kind of safety training uh, around the country and around the world even. So he, he had a pretty good, pretty good career overall. My mother... With five kids, I'm sure she worked from the home for the most part, yeah, right? Yeah, for the most part. She, she helped mine some other uh, par uh, kids uh, for other parents as well in oh, the community. Nice. And, nice. and then went back to work actually when the kids got a little bit older as a secretary in a local high school. Right, right. Where were you in the mix? Right in the middle, at the top, at the bottom? Second, second, second oldest, okay. yeah. Got it, got it. And what were some of the things that you remember? You know, maybe inspirations from mom and dad. Sounds like dad was a pretty hard worker, certainly committed to his job. Uh, uh, any things that stood out from you in those early days? Yeah, I think, I think both my parents worked extremely hard um, and <clears throat> took their roles uh, seriously, uh, really looked after after us kids. I think one of the things that kind of stood out was they uh, they were pretty strict on rules, like we weren't allowed mm. to watch television during the week. So so we read a lot of books, oh. all, all five of us. And nice. we played together, you know, it was a great having, you know, your own basketball team-sized family. We're all, <laughs> all right. in a couple of There's years. There's always somebody other, to so. play with, yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, awesome. so, so a lot of playing out in the street and cycling around and... Uh, yeah. And build some good autonomy in that way. We were very involved in sports and scouting and all that kind of mm. thing growing up and would, you know, get on the train at a young age and head into Dublin City and do different activities like that. So built up a lot of uh, autonomy and nice. uh, trust with the parents from an early age. Was it uh, kind of a small rural town? You know, you said you were south of Dublin. Was it kind of greater Dublin area? You, you're kind of a suburb there? Or, yeah, it's you know, more of the latter, yeah. More yeah, of a greater yeah. Yeah, Dublin right. area. So yeah. right, straight kind of commuter train uh, into the city. So, awesome. Were so, yeah, you a good I, student in school? Um, I think I, I always got pretty good grades in yeah. school. I don't know if the teachers would say I was uh, you know, the most studious. I, I had fun. I played a lot of sports. Uh, had a great set of friends uh, right. growing up and didn't take school overly seriously. It was right, right. relatively competitive kind of schooling. I was in an all-boys school in high oh, school, okay. which is got which it. is not not unusual in Ireland. But sure, uh, sure. that helped, I guess. Catholic? Bit, was it, was it a Catholic focused. school or, or more of a private school? It was Catholic. It was a public yeah, school. Public yeah. school. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, I played rugby uh, in the right. school and played basketball. And uh, right. so, yeah, always busy with different activities um, and kind of took more satisfaction even out of my uh, kind of sporting uh, successes or achievements right. than even academic. I'd, I'd always kind yeah. of been a little bit lucky on, on that front. Was rugby the favorite sport? That was the big sport in our yeah. school. Yeah, I yeah. played for a right. few years. I picked up a few injuries and decided to switch over to basketball later on in my career and actually played basketball in college uh, as I well did. as I okay. went on. Cool. So cool. always enjoyed those type of... Uh, you know, coaches can have events. a big influence on us as we grow up. Was was there one that you remembered in particular, uh, good or bad, you know, because sometimes some of the things we see, you know, that are uh, not particularly the best behavior do last with us, but uh, were there early coaches that inspired you in life? Yeah, we had had some really great coaches, both in the sport world and in in the scouting world. Um, yes. And I think the one thing that kind of sticks out to me is that they all gave me opportunities to develop leadership skills. I didn't realize it at the time, but to be the captain of a team or to be the the junior leader in a scouting organization and uh, taking on some responsibilities like that, right. I think that's had a huge impact on me year and year. I never kind of shied away from those opportunities in the work environment then after that. So I can imagine. Uh, lots of impacts in that front. So scouting, are we talking about Boy Scouts or was it a different um, organization in Ireland? 
Yeah, it's yeah, the Boy Scouts of Ireland. Yeah, yeah Boy Scouts yeah. of Ireland, right. Yeah. So a lot of outings, uh, merit badges, those types of approaches. Was it modeled uh, similarly to, to BSA? Yeah, I think it's very, very similar yeah. concepts. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, yeah. reward and recognition for different right. achievements and, you know, different... Uh, camp you know, outs and... Camp outs and... Long yeah, hikes take, and so forth. Out, yeah, groups on camping yeah. events. Yeah. Yeah. If you look back at those Boy Scout years, what were some of the things that you think you kind of retained as uh, as a manager today, as a leader today? I think, uh, you know, listening, listening to your, your mm. teammates and understanding, you know, you could be in a in the middle of a forest and trying to work out what direction you're going in to get, <laughs> to get back to right. home base. And, uh, you know, quite <laughs> it often. Better you, not be too autocratic on that one, right? <laughs> yeah. You, you don't want to rely on one person's judgment, having a second set of eyes on things and, yeah. and being able to, to, uh, be humble enough to listen to those things. I think that, that helped us out of a few uh, pickles that we found ourselves in. <laughs> That's great. Um, you know, kids that grow up in America and many of our CEOs did a lot of entrepreneurial things. But of course, that's a very American cultural thing, right? You have the paper route, you mow the lawn, et cetera. Was it similar in, in Ireland or, or was there really not the spending money, um, you know, kind of motivation at that earlier age? I think there was, you know, we didn't uh, come from a, a very wealthy family. Mm. So my my parents did a great job looking after the basic needs. But if you wanted right. to do anything extra above and beyond, you you went out and kind of earned that yourself. Were like you a, one of those kids? And if so, what kind of things did you do? I yeah, I think I was. I, I, uh, for example, our, our scout troop uh, went on several international trips, one to Germany and one later on to Canada, which you can imagine are pretty expensive. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and they let you kind of generate some money for yourself in that process. Uh, I, I, went, I remember going down to a local supermarket and talking to the manager. Uh, I was probably 14 years old at the time and uh, convincing them that they should let the, the scout group uh, pack bags at the end of the, the, huh. the aisle and, and wheel the carts out to the, for the, the patrons and, and get tips that, that were put towards our trips, that, that kind of activity. But I, I did uh, genuinely organize that myself, you know. I, nice. I took on jobs that by the time I was 16, I was doing three different jobs. Wow. Uh, I worked as a waiter in a bar when I was 14. Wow. That wasn't uh, totally legal at the time. But <laughs> I was, was going to say, was it 15 <laughs> drinking age in Ireland? Don't uh, answer it, that question. It's 18, <laughs> but you could work there, I think, as, as a 16-year-old. But I, oh I think I stuck my way in early and, yeah. and learned yeah. how to, in a pretty blue-collar bar, and I learned how to sure. uh, work with all different types of uh, customers and deal with different types of pressure. You can imagine uh, live music kind of venue. And, oh, my God. I eventually yeah. became a barman there and worked there wow. for for seven years. I also started. Wow, to, really? Uh, was that through through the college years, then, Michael? Yeah, through college years yeah. as well. Yeah, awesome. I worked in a department store for my summers as a kind of second job, and then I, I began to teach uh, mathematics and physics when I was oh. about seventeen or eighteen. Teaching to, or, or or coaching or tutoring? Teaching, yeah, it's kind teaching. of tutoring. Wow. Yeah, kind of like tutoring, extra. Yeah, yeah one right, on one. Right, right. It started off as one on one, what they call grinds in Ireland, right. uh, for people that are coming up to <laughs> exam periods, and then. Yeah. Word got out, and I got recruited by a school that did extracurricular kind of uh, teaching, and I ended up teaching classes of twenty and thirty kids. I, oh. I've, I've always loved teaching. I still do that as a kind of primary yeah. part of my job today, yeah. but, uh, trying to help people, you know, build different skill sets. Uh, yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, my uh, my uh, father was a, a teacher for for many many years, and my daughter is now a learning specialist. She works with kids that have you know learned differently. And Dad, it's not learning disabilities; it's how they learn differently. Kids on the autism scale. There's a lot of satisfaction action in teaching. Absolutely. Did you find that being uh, the same for you? Yes, absolutely. And you yeah. know, you learn one thing that I learned at the time as a you know a teenager was 
the different methods people learn, uh, the different ways they learn visually or through writing or through practice or whatever else, and, and obviously the different pace that people learn it as well, kind of gave me a bit of a, a better understanding of you know why some people pick yeah. things up very quickly and others are different in different ways and at different paces. And I think that's also helped me in, in later years in life too. Yeah, awesome. Well, you, you said your dad, you know, worked, obviously went back and got his degree. Mom, was she degreed or uh, kind of finished the junior high or high school? And what, what was her educational background? Yeah, she she was just uh, in high school and then uh, started working, I think, in a a local store and started a family pretty Started a family early on, I can imagine. It was pretty normal back then. So so she she went back to school later on. Okay, so you went back to school as well. Oh, cool. oh, sorry, she went back to work at a school as a secretary. Yeah. Oh, got it, got it. So, so you went to college. Um, was it kind of a foregone conclusion? Was that something that mom and dad, you know, kind of had planned for you? I mean, with five brothers and sisters, you know, obviously it would be hard to finance that. But um, uh, you know, what was your thinking about that? Was that something that was just always encouraged? You were encouraged to do growing up. Yeah, always. Yeah. Uh, and the, the whole family, where all five of us went to college, That's in, awesome. in Ireland, cool. uh, it's a totally different uh, setup than what right. we have in the U.S. So, in yeah. fact, the, yeah. the years I went to college, it was completely state funded. So, oh, that's great. It didn't cost awesome. a penny. It was. Yeah. It's a. I really like the system in Ireland. It's a complete meritocracy. Uh, it's purely nice. based on the scores you get in your final exams uh, after finishing high school. Yeah. Uh, so there's no kind of who you know. There's no financial implications of uh, what you can afford or not. And yeah. basically, the top students get into the into the top courses. So That's great. Uh, but, and you went to University College Dublin, and as I recall, you did uh, mechanical engineering. Correct. That's right. Yeah. 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 What led you into that field? I was always, you know. Uh, always interested in mathematics and physics and science. Mm. Uh, I, I liked a lot of my subjects. In fact, one of the, my concerns going into engineering was I loved English, the English language, and studying Shakespeare and Yeats. And, mm. that, and I, right. I was worried I'd lose that or lose yeah. the need for those yeah. kind of skills. But I, I found uh, that, you know, obviously in this type of role, being a good communicator and being able to express yourself mm. succinctly is, has been critical too. Uh, I was always interested in Formula One racing, car oh. racing. Um, that's kind of a, a big thing in, in Ireland um, yeah. Yeah. And, and across the world. So I didn't envision at the time of studying mechanical engineering that I'd spend the next 20 years working on cosmetics and skincare for <laughs> I women. I would have guessed, uh, yeah. Well, quite. did you have a strong math and science? I it, We have one ME in the family, my oldest son. And, uh, you know, he was the one, even when he was six years old, right? That we get the gift at Christmas. Nobody understand it. Give Christian the instructions, right? You know, were you with those kind of kid where you kind of always had an affinity towards things that were science oriented or did that come later? Yeah, no, always, always inquisitive yeah. and curious and, and yeah. learning and uh, math was always came relatively mm. easy. I thought I was, I thought it was pretty good until my younger brother came along and uh, <laughs> beat me at every award. You or, <laughs> he's, a, he's on a different scale. He had altogether. a goal. You set the bar, but he had the bar to go over. So, you know, exactly. you can't, can't blame him for that. And then you got your MBA from the University of Iowa. Now, I assume that was after you came to the States, right? Or did you come straight over for your university? Because I know you were with, uh, we were with Proctor for many years uh, yeah. in your early years, our, 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 our alma mater, a proctoid as we call ourselves, right? Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, I did that with uh, while working at Procter and Gamble as, a, as yeah. an evening course. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So, so back to school. You obviously did your uh, uh, mechanical engineering degree. What What was that first job that you got out of college? Did you work in that field originally, or did you go straight to Procter? I went straight to Proctor as, as right. a mechanical engineer. Yeah, okay, I did an yeah. internship so. one summer with them. I spent a couple of summers in the U.S. actually, one, one in 
Washington, D.C., working as a waiter in an Irish restaurant and one ah, moving cool. furniture in Boston, and <laughs> it's, which is not unusual for, for Irish college students to come over here and spend some time here. Right, right. But the the, the other summer, I did an internship at P&G and just nice. fell in love with the type of work. You know, when, yeah. when you're in college, you really don't understand what you will do as an engineer. You know, right, you, right. you do all the mathematical formulas and all that, but how are you going to apply that in the real world? So I got to learn with P&G how to, you know, it's a huge amount of it's working with people, working through people. And uh, after that one summer, I was hooked and I was lucky enough to be offered a full-time mm. position to come back when I finished my education. That's awesome. Well, you know, I know we're both biased because we both started our career at Proctor. You were there about twice as long as I was, but, uh, you know, great place. Uh, and in my recruiting roles, you know, when I see uh, someone who's been five to 10 years or longer at Proctor in their career, I know what they're made of. You know, I know their foundation. W what attracted you to the company and, and why you think that was your first job? Obviously you did the internship, but even making that choice, I'm sure you had other potentials to go to. What, what was it that attracted you to P&G? I think there's a few things about the, the company. Being a multinational was attractive. Mm, you know, I like yeah. to travel and see the world. So that potentially gave me that opportunity. And it certainly played out like that. Um, one of the uh, features of the company that really attracted me at the time was this concept of promote from within. So yes, they have a policy yeah. that they will only promote from within. And I'm a pretty naturally competitive person. And right, right. the concept of knowing the competitive field and knowing that mm. I can progress up the ladder uh, without somebody being brought in from the outside above me. For some reason, as a 21-year-old, that was a, a very attractive proposition. Mm. So Yeah. Um, and Proctor gave you leadership responsibilities pretty early on too, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. I got yeah. to, uh, by, you know, two years into the job, I was running the largest department in Ireland uh, on, a, awesome. on a big multinational launch. So that, that was pretty exciting. And I've, throughout, throughout my 18 years there, they continue to stretch me and give me more and more responsibilities. You know, you know, I, I'd heard and read, I'm, I'm sure lots of people have read this, you know, P&G is renowned for being one of the best uh, developers of leaders mm. in the world. It's typically voted by that on, on one of the magazines each year. Right. And I always kind of scratch my head as to how that was, because while there's some formal training, there, there wasn't a whole lot of that. But you realize after the fact, when you reflect back, that the experiences that they put you in and the responsibilities Absolutely. that they give you at very young ages and how, how dynamic that is, how many changes that yeah. that has really does help grow you in ways that uh, you don't recognize at the time. Yeah, when you're in it, and this is certainly my perspective, you don't re recognize it because you're working with very competitive people. And what I found is when I went outside, it was like all of a sudden it dawned on me, wow, you know, it's a very different work world out there with lots of different skills and lots of different abilities and, and lots of different approaches. And, uh, you know, sometimes that takes a while to get adjusting to. Did, did you go through that at all when you left, uh, finally left Procter? Yeah, it is, it is always an adjustment. I mean, it's 18 yeah. years with one company. It's kind of like a marriage and uh, right, you, right. you leave that relationship and start a new one. And um, there's there's good and bad, you know, there's right. uh, different challenges outside of P&G where you maybe are working with a, a workforce that doesn't have the same types of experiences um, or hasn't all been brought up in the same culture, for example. Uh, right. There's other good things and different dynamic things that you learn outside of P&G as well that uh, different players bring to the table. Yeah. Now, did they have a manufacturing plant in Ireland? Is that where you were working or was more of an R&D facility? 
or was, PDD was, as we used to call it. Yeah, it was manufacturing. Manufacturing, yeah. 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 Got it. And what did what did they make there in Ireland? That was uh, the the Ole skincare okay. and the, the color cosmetics as well. Max so Factor you're right into the beauty care from the very get go. Yes, yeah, yeah. in beauty care the entire time. Yeah, awesome, awesome. So uh, when did you make that transition over to the states? Was that fairly early on? What was the first uh, assignment when, which brought you over here? Yeah, it was about three and a half years uh, into okay. the into the company. I yeah. I'd asked to be transferred to the U.S. I had a couple of early successes, and I I was relatively young, I was twenty five at the time, right, and right. thought, uh, let's ride you know, this wave a little bit. Let's go international <laughs> early before it before I get settled down, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. family wise. Good so call. so Good I pushed call. for that, and they kind of said no initially, and then I actually had a different job offer from a different company in the U.S. and and then P and G decided, hey, maybe it's worth uh, finding a transfer for this guy, and and I came over and. Uh, hit the ground running, uh, running a large yeah. uh, compounding uh, hair care fac- uh, facility. Now, was that in Cincinnati first, or did you did it bring you straight to Iowa? I went straight to Iowa City. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. yeah. One of their largest uh, beauty care sites. Yeah. And worked, worked several roles there um, in different operational and uh, continuous improvement uh, right. type roles. And then uh, after a few years, uh, uh, during that time, I met my wife who also uh, worked in P&G uh-huh. as an engineer. Yeah. Um, and you and became the plant manager there as well. I, right? I did eventually. Yeah. I, I actually yeah. moved away first and then came back as a plant manager okay. a few years later. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. Great, great career. So um, tell me a little bit about kind of some of those e- early leadership lessons, you know, if you reflected back, particularly from bosses and mentors, and, you know, you mentioned something which was certainly true for me. I love the promote from within. You're never going to work for someone that either hasn't done the job before or certainly has excelled in other jobs that's put them in that leadership role. Were there some good lessons you learned along the way that, that you You've stuck with you, even though after you've left Procter. Yeah, there's there's plenty. I had a lot of great coaches uh, during my time mm. in P and One of the key things that kind of sticks out is this concept of results delivery. You know that. Mm. Uh, there's plenty of people that spend a lot of time on the politics of their career and uh, doing the right kind of networking, and and you certainly need to do some of that. But I think sometimes you can lose focus on just delivering results. So I've always had that as the, at the front of my mind. You know, if we're going to deliver a record result year, whatever result that you're responsible for, to really stay laser focused on that. I think the right. teams that work with you and around you and for you in that process, when they recognize that, you know, we're going to go deliver this result, come hell or high water, they they jump on board and and ultimately I think appreciate the the laser focus um, mm-hmm, versus mm-hmm. kind of jumping around or trying to be a populist uh, type of leader. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was one thing. Yeah. Uh, I did learn a lot in my time in P&G about the importance of culture in the organization and mm. especially as I start to, to lead larger plants. You know, my last plant was a $2 billion organization wow. uh, with over 600 full-time employees so you were what in your 30s right i mean barely yeah yeah, barely (laughs) yeah so uh So yeah, it was it was quite a a daunting responsibility. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. I love that about Procter. Yeah, yeah, but also you know a great great bunch of people that uh, that really wanted to to make some changes and and kind of helped coach me through it as much as I helped uh, coach them through some of the changes we made and really made some substantial both cultural changes first and then really the results came after that. Thinking back to the time, this was probably back in Ireland when you first started managing people, what were some of the challenges you had in that role? Because, you know, again, Procter was your first job, first time you managed people were there. Uh, Do you remember some of those early lessons? Sure. I mean, you come out of engineering college and uh, you feel like you, you know a lot of things about how things work and 
how to get things done. I think, uh, and then you're suddenly you're managing people that are as old or older than your parents. I think uh, the key thing for me was to learn to be humble. You know, mm. I'm a kind of a pretty go-getter kind of a personality. Right, right. Uh, You've to, mentioned competitive more than once. Right. <laughs> um, so so to, to learn how to listen and pause, and especially people with all these mm. years of experience, no matter right. what Right. Well, you were probably managing background. people that were much older than you in the early exactly. days. Yeah, yep, right. Yeah. Line, line folks, et cetera. Yeah. And, and really you learn, it doesn't really matter. Age doesn't play a whole lot into mm. it. What, what experiences people have, what background, the diversity of, of thought really always lends itself to a better solution in the end. So uh, that wasn't first in my thoughts uh, as a young 20, 21, mm, 22 year old. But So I, I had to go through a learning curve with that. I had a couple of people pull me aside and <laughs> tell me to calm down and to, to yeah. listen better. So I certainly made my share of mistakes, but uh, yeah, I think that's definitely <laughs> stuck with me over time. You know, we've all had good bosses, bosses, but Proctor has a share of bad bosses too. So without mentioning any names, uh, do you remember any specific behaviors or situations where you've either had bosses or colleagues that did something and you went, ooh, boy, I'll never do that. And if so, what was what, what would that have been? You know, when, when I went to run my first plant out in Boston, it was mm. a, a former Gillette plant, um, mm. made shave cream and, and these kind of aerosol right, products. Right. Uh, Probably not too long after the acquisition then, right? Because yeah, it was, it was, Gillette there, hadn't there, been on that long. Yeah, right. Yeah. There'd been at least one P&G plant manager that had been sent in to kind of manage the transition. And I think... Uh, there's some mistakes that were made, in, in my opinion, that were kind of what I would call the opposite of servant leadership. So mm. uh, my predecessor had a, uh, you know, a full wing of the building to themselves with, you know, extra conference rooms and uh, very separate <laughs> from the actual operation. So I, mm. I immediately went in and transitioned that into a training center and put myself in a small office close to the operation. I started wearing the same uniform as the mm. employees uh, and showing up on the line to help them on cleaning days and different things like that to really push this point of servant leadership. You know, when I, when I was sent out there, I was kind of told by my senior leadership that there was clearly a people problem uh, in this plant, that people weren't getting the job done, they were missing mm. quality checks or whatever. So I spent time shadowing yeah. individuals. I spent days on the floor literally following people around and seeing what they did and, and learned right. that there was far too many things on their to-do list that mm. was physically possible, you know. And that uh, was causing the errors, most likely. That, that, yeah. well, people weren't yeah. trying to be bad, right? People right. want to do right. a great job, sure. right? Oh, yeah. It's uh, always the case, yeah. yeah. At the same time, I'd watched this... Uh, a documentary on Boeing uh, at the time and, mm. and the, how they reinvent the next version of, of an airplane. And and yeah. I, through, through that combination, I came up with what I call the airplane model, um, where I sat down all of the leaders in the organization and I created this rule that if you want to roll out any new thing to this operation, to the people that do the real work on the floor, before you do that, you need to remove something of equal or greater mm. uh, time uh, from their place, which is the same rule about designing a new airplane. You can't add on the new components without taking something week or a greater weight off of it. Uh, and we made that rule public throughout the whole uh, organization. Mm. Uh, so the focus shifted from just telling people, rolling things downhill uh, right. to the person at the bottom of the, the ladder um, to the leaders coming up with simplification techniques to take work off of their plates. And we found mm. a ton of wasteful work to be able to take off their plates. That had a huge impact on morale, on productivity, mm. on us doing the important stuff that really needed to be done. And, uh, and that kind of set us on our way on both the cultural journey and the results journey. Awesome. Now, were they a lean operation already? Or because it sounds like a lot of lean principles came into that. Yeah. I mean, we we have 
P&G has its own uh, version of lean, but very consistent with the Toyota methods, uh, right. etc. So, and Gillette were probably half a step behind P&G mm-hmm. on that front, but but right. had lots of good things as well that maybe you know through the acquisition were overlooked. So we we try to get the best the best of both worlds. Now you left Procter as a plant manager and and pretty much became a CEO pretty quick, right? Because uh, Northwest Cosmetic Labs before um, transitioning to Elevation Labs. Tell me about that transition. Was that hard to leave Procter after all those years? Uh, or was it, you know, time to kind of move on? And this was a unique opportunity to grab the golden ring of the C-suite. Yeah, it was It was very difficult. It was the most difficult decision of my life, to be honest with you. And yeah, I went yeah. back and forth on the decision every day leading up to the deadline. It's self-imposed. Um, but ultimately decided to, you know, I, I do have an entrepreneurial spirit inside me. Um, I've always wanted to have a go of having, you know, some more control over over the destiny of a company. Um, mm. And really, and, and in P&G, while you get to demonstrate or practice some of that, there's, you know, being as big a company as it is, there's definitely a lot more bureaucracy and, and red tape mm. to work through to make a change. So so that, that was kind of the attraction to, to give this right. uh, opportunity to go. I, did did I someone at, like me come after you? Is that how it yes. came about? <laughs> something, okay. somebody exactly Blame it like on you. the recruiter. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I wasn't, I certainly wasn't out there looking for yeah, opportunities. Yeah, I had yeah. plenty of things going on with B&G, but, yeah. and, and actually... Interestingly enough, uh, I hadn't ever been to Idaho. It was one of the last five states mm. that I hadn't visited. So uh, yeah. I kind of took the opportunity to come and, and see the state and have a look yeah. at the company. I wasn't taking it all that seriously until I met some of the people here mm. and was blown away by their level of passion and ownership, uh, commitment to the customer and awesome. uh, and the facility that the organization had built here and, and the plan to do further acquisitions. All of those things got me got me excited. And yeah. between myself and my wife, we made, made a pretty big decision to take the leap of faith. Fantastic. Now, we spoke uh, around the Thanksgiving time as we planned for this, and you told me a little bit about the transition between Northwest Cosmetic Labs and, and Elevation. Tell me a little bit about that again. How did that, how that come about? Sure. So uh, as, as I arrived, uh, the company had just made its first acquisition right. of a company down in Los Angeles, a color cosmetics company. Um, and to be honest with you, some of the cultural challenges uh, were pretty evident as I got involved. And some of those, uh, I believe, came from the concept of who bought who and who's who owns who and, and some of these kind of this kind of language was being used which wasn't helpful on, right. on any front so uh, but, but you knew this was coming right that the acquisition or the merger uh, when you joined or or was that new information after you came in i knew slightly before yeah, okay. I, I, I formally right. joined right. but uh, right. I, I knew that there was acquisition work underway uh, and about a year later uh, i kind of led the way through another acquisition of a company out in colorado that does natural and organic uh, products uh, colorado quality products and as we were doing that i took the learnings from the first acquisition and decided that it would be better uh, for everyone if we rebranded our company with a pair company called Elevation Mm. Labs Mm. um, so that we're all kind of sister companies versus any kind of hierarchy between the divisions because one thing that's critically important to me is that that we all work well together. I I have the pleasure of uh, visiting each of the divisions every month and we do different reviews and kind of accountability and I get to walk around the floor and meet with people and every single time I see something that blows me away, some breakthrough (laughs) activity or process that one of our leaders has developed and one of the things that I learned from my my time in P&G is, you know, 
it's hard to get people to reapply each other's ideas. So, so we came up with something called the the Robin Hood Award. It's the biggest award we get give out in the company every year, um, for whichever team or individual steals shamelessly from another division and copies <laughs> their their practice and puts it in place. So when we we do I these tours, it. we we have a whole list of Robin Hood activities. People use it as a verb now in the company. I Robin Hooded this, or uh, and it's uh, <laughs> take from the rich to give to the poor. That's exactly. Fantastic. Yeah. I love I think, that. I love the, that. The cultural implication, you know, the, the things that get awarded is that don't go reinvent the yeah, wheel or don't make okay it your own thing. It's okay to adopt or adapt. Yeah, yeah we want to show yeah. up to the customers uh, the exact same way. So so we all have the exact same daily direction setting processes. We have the exact same, um, you know, visual aids, quality practices, yeah. all yeah. those kind of things. And that's and while they will continue to get improved, as they get improved, they'll be reapplied instantaneously in the other nice. divisions. Nice. Now, when you joined, um, you joined as, a, as, a, as I believe, the COO, correct? But did correct. you know you'd be on the trajectory for the top slot or did that kind of evolve over the first year or so? Um, I talked to, uh, you know, the recruiter and the private equity firm mm-hmm. um, about that opportunity and kind of hoped if I performed well, it might show up uh, two or three years uh, into right. the assignment, but right. uh, actually happened about three months in, into the yeah. assignment. So, yeah, tell us a little uh, bit about faster, that. <laughs> yeah, faster than I anticipated, you know. Uh, there's different dynamics going on in the company, and right. for one reason or another, the opportunity showed up and the uh, the board of directors uh, from whatever they'd seen from the first couple of months asked me to kind of step in as president initially um, wow. and just kind of test the waters. Uh, and over the next three months, basically, what, whatever I did was was uh, good enough for them to offer yeah. me the CEO position. So it's a, a lot of years, responsibility early, but uh, all those years of PG training paid off, I think. Yeah. Right? Yeah, <laughs> something like that. that. Yeah, it was a good, a good opportunity. You know, I've heard it said recently that it can be somewhat uncomfortable having your answers questioned rather than your questions answered as a CEO. Have you ever been in that situation? You know, one of the things that that we do is. Uh, we do communications to all of our divisions, to every employee, basically, mm. in English and in Spanish every month, um, which is quite a, quite a lot of effort. You know, it's basically a, a full day a month uh, of my time. Right. But to get to talk to the employees and hear questions back um, mm. of what's going on and what the strategy is, sometimes when you got 200 people in a room, uh, people are a little bit shy to, to raise their hand and right, ask a question. Right. So I also started doing something what, that I call open mic events, where we have about 10 to 20 people, typically a department-sized group, and we sit down for an hour, sometimes over a lunch, and they get the opportunity to ask me any questions that they want to. What's mm. going on in the company? What's the strategy? Um, sometimes personal questions. I get to hear from them what are the challenges that they're having. And this has been hugely insightful it's to great. me to, to really stay in touch, especially across three divisions, across the geography, um, with, with where the sentiment of the organization is. It also helps them here closer to firsthand, kind of what, where my thought mm-hmm, process is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's helped both answer the questions and question the answers and uh, <laughs> and keep the have dialogue bold, very open. Have they been bold enough to come up with some challenging questions, you know, from the ranks about what management may or may, or may not be doing? Yeah, I really think everybody is extremely comfortable through this Good. process of asking anything that they want to ask and making different suggestions, some of which we've really implemented within a, within a month or two because they're, they're really good suggestions. And yeah. when people see that happening, then they they really feel listened to. And I think that's really helped both the culture and, and ultimately the results. 
and I'm sure your, your humility as well, right? And, you know, I'd always, um, the, the more humble I think as a leader servant can be, the more open uh, feedback you typically get. And, and that usually generates a, a much better working style and certainly a lot more satisfaction of those uh, in the rank and file. Yeah, and we have people here for 20 plus years. It's only That's a 25 great. year old company, but yeah, I've got to yeah. believe they know a whole lot more than me about certain <laughs> situations. So you have to be able to listen. Absolutely. Awesome. How would you say your leadership styles evolved over time, particularly, you know, the 18 years, obviously, at Procter and now what the two, three years or so in, in the new new job? Have you made modifications and changes? Have there been things that have been revolutionary, maybe more than evolutionary? Um, I think. I'd start off saying that there's a lot that's been consistent, you know, the the competitive drive, the delivering of results, the focus on that uh, has has never changed. I think the style about which I I achieve that has definitely evolved um, more and more on the listening front, uh, gathering input, getting buy-in early on. Um, getting the team aligned uh, like yeah. that. I think I've grown more more humble over time, I think, on that front. Um, always, and probably always more comfortable with that. And more comfortable with that as you've seen the results over the years. Exactly, yeah. And yeah. I, I yeah. think, interestingly enough, in, in this role as CEO, uh, given you're, you're at the top of the ladder, it's... Uh, it's even more comfortable. You know, I'm not right. necessarily trying to impress uh, anybody from a career or politics standpoint <laughs> right, like right. you typically would be doing in a PNG type of a world. So, so yeah, you get to really right. listen and, and, and yeah, yeah, you can do what you want with the feedback and, and, and move forward. But uh, I've also learned the value over time of surrounding myself with great people. I've yeah. had some people that have joined me from, from P&G, other great people that have been in this company all along and some, some others again that we've brought in to strengthen the team. But, you know, the, there's only so much you can do uh, as a leader, as a, as a CEO. Uh, a lot of it's enabling and empowering the people um, in your organization and serving them to be the best versions of themselves. So, right. so I think that the approach to that has just gotten stronger year yeah. after year. Well, it sounds to me you don't only not need to be the smartest person in the room, you don't want to be the smartest person in the room. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I get those good folks around us. Tell us a little bit about, you know, building a company culture. You know, what does that look like, particularly given, you know, kind of the um, past Procter, right? And the, the new company and, you know, the merging of the two companies there probably was some, a little bit of strife and anxiety, right? And you bring people together, you know, how do you as CEO make that happen? What does that look like at uh, Elevation Labs? Yeah, so I think you know being present and mm. and uh, available to talk and to share your thought process. Uh, if if you're invisible or in the background, it's you're not really influencing the culture as much as you could. Right. Um, I think talking directly about you know controversial topics, uh, if it's you know at the kind of uh, level of policy, you know employee policy, or if it's uh, dealing with the a difficult employee kind of situation. I think being <laughs> right. involved in that, people understanding where your principles are, uh, people really do fall in line very quickly, I've found, um, and, under- and want to know kind of where your head's at. So if they're guessing mm. that for a long time, I think the culture can go in lots of different directions sure. unintentionally. So yeah. so it, that, that takes work and effort. It takes traveling to other divisions. Uh, it takes talking to lots of people and being on the floor, being available. Um, but it's, it's so worthwhile uh, in the mm. long run. The, the other thing I think that's critical is, is really having a, 
a direction in the culture that you want to you want to move the organization. Right, right. People can talk culture till the cows come home, but if they don't <laughs> really kind of write it down and say these are the values right. we're going to live by, if these are this is how I want our organization defined in one year, two years, five years time, and then and then here is an action plan that we're going to mm. put together to actually achieve that. You can't just kind of sit back and hope everybody gets it and starts thinking the way you're thinking. You really have to put actions in place. So, for example, one of our actions uh, is around reward and recognition. And mm. what behaviors are we going to reward? Well, we put a process in place called the MVP award that we give out every single month in that site communication mm. I described. Nice. And we put the winner's picture up on the on the big screen yeah. and, and a description, most importantly, of the behaviors they mm. had that we appreciate. So everybody hears these five winners every month and why they won and that starts to shift the culture in a direction that you want to. And they're kind of to. drawn back to the core values, right? You're using exactly. this to reinforce that. No, that's great. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Because it's one thing to have a mission statement that's up on a wall. But I think you're right. Companies really have to live that and people have to see it for it to become real for them. Exactly, yes. What do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire, Michael? I think there's there's several things. Um, I think that one of the first and foremost to me is is a humility and a willingness to mm. learn. You know, if somebody yeah. comes in and behave, no matter how expert they are in their field, if they behave like they know it all and it's going to be their way or the highway, I think we're in <laughs> trouble from the get-go. Uh, if, if you show adaptability and eagerness and drive and passion for your work, um, if you illustrate work ethic, I know that's sometimes a taboo thing to talk about, but uh, for me, in our beauty care world, it's constantly changing right. and evolving. It, it, there is a requirement that to, to work hard when, when a, the customer requires that. Uh, so people that show that kind of flexibility, adaptability, and drive, uh, and, and, and desire to learn and grow, uh, mm. they're the folks that we really, really want. We, we've actually started to evolve to uh, not 100%, but uh, over 75% promote from within here and really try oh, and drive. Great careers yeah. inside our company. So the vast majority of moves sideways and upwards have been internal candidates. And that's helped the culture uh, immensely. It's helped our retention rates, you know, uh, yeah. improved uh, drastically over the last couple of years. And uh, But it, but I, I want those people that want, you need people that really want to grow and develop in those worlds. So that's, that's something right. that I look for whenever I'm looking at a hire. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Michael, time has just flown by, but we do have one last question that we ask all our CEO guests. And, you know, what career and life advice would you give to someone that perhaps has their eyes on the corner office someday? Yeah, I think uh, first thing I would say is to be clear on your goal, be clear with mm. the people around you. Uh, obviously, your boss should know that you're, even if that role you're looking for is above your boss's role, I think you need to be bold enough to express yeah. that. Uh, ideally, a mentor, a sponsor that's coaching you through um, to understand where you're going to go. And Funnily enough, I think it's critical that your spouse understands mm. that too. Now, that might seem oh, yeah. obvious that that would be the case, but... No, you'd to, be surprised how often <laughs> that doesn't come up. <laughs> right. And, and to, you know, I advise some of uh, our younger leaders to like mm. sit down with a pen and paper with your partner right, right. and write down what you want to achieve and then really describe what that life means. Yeah. How much travel yeah. is that going to require? What kind of hours of work is that going to require? What kind of sacrifices need to be made? What education do I need to build right. in the meantime? What and, impact? might it have on the kids or the kids to be exactly right what time of yeah. our lives we want to kind of achieve that by yeah. and so on so i think having your uh, partner support you through that journey because there's plenty of challenges in that journey mm. uh, is, is essential and if you don't have their kind of understanding of what you're signing up for early on that that can be critical yeah. once you have everybody lined up and you understand the stepping stones to get there uh, 
my my last piece of advice is to be uh, to be very results focused. Don't forget your day job. Don't put all right. your energy into what the future is going to be and do all the the politicking and, and networking to get there without delivering results. Uh, the fr- for what you're responsible for, yeah, yeah. and then be patient. You know, it's it's mm. impossible to exactly map this out. That's uh, right. Opportunities sometimes take longer than you would have desired <laughs> or expected, and, and or sometimes, sometimes they take two to three months. <laughs> some, exactly right. It, it, you got to be opportunistic and flexible. Yeah. Be, be geographically mobile is definitely right. a big advantage. Um, uh, that that'll open up the amount of opportunities that show up and, and keep your ear to the ground. So, yeah. I think if you do all those things, uh, the sky is the limit. Uh, and uh, yeah, you can get to where you want to get to. Awesome. Well, Michael Hughes, president and CEO of Elevation Labs, thank you so much for sharing your insights and your journey into the corner office. Great. Thank you, Brent. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.